Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Andrew Merrill, the Director of North American Brand and Consumer Marketing at New Balance. While he got his start in public relations, Andrew has transitioned to marketing and has now spent time with three different brands. With each, he has found endorsements to be a powerful tool. When you align with athletes or properties that are highly visible and align with your brand personality, it's really, really impactful to to build awareness and kind of bring in new consumers. And it just makes all of the more hard-hitting tactics to drive the business that much easier when you have some high-profile athletes who are, who are doing some amazing things out on the field and on the court. While he worked for a pair of storied Major League Baseball franchises before joining the brand side, Andrew has always enjoyed the challenge of doing new things. I love those sort of entrepreneurial environments where you can be creative within these major global iconic brands to create something new that didn't exist before. Andrew also shares what he feels helped him turn his initial internship with the Boston Red Sox into a full-time job. But I think what I really tried to do was do really high quality work, build, build my reputation, especially when you're around athletes and sort of a status type of a role. You want to show that you're responsible and reliable and you're not, you know, just sort of chasing some of the flashier parts of the job. He also speaks candidly about his decision to transition to marketing and the brand side of the business. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, baseball was my first love growing up and everything that makes it so amazing as a fan. There's a game every single day, every night. You can tune in whenever you want. It's always there. Makes it, as you said, absolutely grueling to to work in. It's incredibly taxing and you definitely need passion because if you don't love it you're just not going to make your you're not going to make your way through there are as always show notes on credentialsonly.com which is also the place to sign up for our mailing list also take a moment follow us on social media and if you would please leave a rating and review wherever you are listening without further ado please enjoy this conversation with andrew merrill from new balance andrew i want to thank you for joining me i'm looking forward to discussing so much of your work but what stood out as I was getting ready to talk to you is just there's a variety in your work experience. I'm just going to read you a few of the titles that, that pop up on your resume. A coordinator of baseball information, assistant director of entertainment and business PR, athlete marketing manager, director of sports marketing, and now director of brand and consumer marketing. To the outsider, those all seem pretty different. Aside from all being jobs you've had, What's kind of the common thread for you as you look at all those different pieces of work? Yeah, it makes it sound like quite a mix when you read it that way. I mean, it's a good thing for this podcast and our conversation. The, the common thread is sports. Uh, that was, you know, always my passion growing up. It's how, I, it's how I landed that first job. And throughout my various roles or you know, the different functions that I've had at, at different companies, the, the one common one is, is always sports all the way through. As you were changing from media relations to a marketing role or going from athletes to sports marketing to the brand marketing, did you feel like it was a pivot or has it seemed like kind of a natural progression for you? Well, there, there were a couple of pivots 
when I started my career, I got into it, it started in PR and that was with the with the Boston Red Sox. And I mean, I grew up a massive baseball fan, so I just wanted to get in the door. And I started as an intern with the Red Sox and I would have taken any role. And it just so happened that media relations was what was available. And so I just wanted to do as good a job as possible so that I kept that job and, and would be able to stay in sports. And I continued in PR as I transitioned from the Red Sox uh, to the LA Dodgers. And then I'd say the first big pivot for me was out of PR and into more of a brand marketing role and also going, which coincided with shifting away from a major league baseball team into a brand. And so that was that shift that I made going from the LA Dodgers to, to Red Bull. So that was definitely a, a big shift for me. And then another pivot was more recently, I'd always been very focused in sports marketing and athlete marketing. Uh, and then when I, when I shifted jobs from Cliff Bar to New Balance, it was outside of a sports marketing role. And now my role at New Balance is much more general marketing across brand and all consumer marketing. So there, there's some consistencies, but definitely two pivots in there that kind of stand out to me. The internship to full-time job is kind of the dream that I think a lot of people hope happens. How were you successful in making that jump early in your career with the Red Sox? Well, I worked hard and I think that everybody in Major League Baseball works really hard because you're working both the business schedule, you know, a nine to five and the game schedule. So oftentimes you'll be at the stadium from nine to midnight or something. But so you're going to work long hours. But I think what I really tried to do was do really high quality work, build build my reputation, especially when you're around athletes and sort of a status type of a role, you want to show that you're responsible and reliable and you're not, um, you know, just sort of chasing some of the flashier parts of the job. So I think it was doing good work, but also building relationships um, and especially with, with my bosses at the time so that when I did graduate from school, they felt confident to bring me back. And eventually became that coordinator of baseball information that sounds like a Bill James stat. <laughs> Is that pretty close to what that was? Sort of. So my role was media relations. And what that really was is kind of an intermediary between the, the media that was covering the Red Sox and the players, front office executives, coaches. And so where that coordinator of baseball information came in is I was trying to put together stats and trends and other data to basically service the sports writers so they can write their, write their stories. So the Bill James side of the world, that was very much kind of baseball operations and scouting and all of that. And I was more on the, on the media side of things, but try to get my hands on the data as much as possible. Boston's a very rabid fan base, but it's also a pretty aggressive media market. How did you find navigating those waters? It was interesting. It was my first job out of school and 
Well, I grew up in Boston, so I certainly knew about the the media market this that this is in, and and just you know Boston's you know, sports talk radio growing up, and I knew how yeah just aggressive the the media could be. So there's a number of different PR jobs. There are proactive PR jobs where you're trying to get coverage for you know the entity that you're working for, and the Red Sox didn't have that problem. It was servicing all of the demand that already existed. So I just learned to operate in a world of excessive requests and trying to manage all the inbound requests at that point and certainly taught me good time management skills uh, because, you know, especially at that time, I was there from 2003 to 2008. And the Red Sox were sort of the pinnacle of the sports world at that time. So in addition to the crazy Boston media, there was national media and plenty of nationally televised games and then international media as the game continued to, to become global. You talked about the different roles. How big is that PR team that was working with the Red Sox at that time? You know, it was relatively small. I think there were only four or five of us at the time. I'm not mm -hmm. sure what PR departments are like today within major league baseball teams. But as I said, we were definitely working long, hard hours and it built some great rapport though among the team. Cause we were definitely small and mighty. You talked about those business hours, then the game hours. And uh, the other thing about baseball is that it's not a short season. You know, you look at the NFL with, a 16 game schedule. And, and that's, you got to be envious of that once a week compared to baseball, which is pretty much every night for six months, you had youth on your side then fresh out of college, but what were some of the things you had to do to just kind of pace yourself to get through so that you were still going in October? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, baseball was my first love growing up and everything that makes it so amazing as a fan there's a game every single day, every night. You can tune in whenever you want. It's always there. Makes it, as you said, absolutely grueling to, to work in. And, you know, there's 162 games in the season. I was there for all, you know, 81 home games. Uh, toward the, the latter part of my time with the Red Sox, I was traveling with the team, uh, you know, about half of the, the road games. I was at spring training for, for two months before that. So when you think about all that, it is, it's incredibly taxing and you definitely need passion because if you don't love it, you're just not going to make your, you're not going to make your way through. And then you need to try to rest whenever that is possible. So when the team is away and you're not on the road, you need to try to just rest and relax and then, those few months during the off season are critical to just try to take a breather so that you can make it through the season. Once it starts up again, you mentioned the Dodgers came next as an outsider. I have no idea if all major league baseball teams are created equal, but how similar is that experience going from one franchise to another? It was actually really different. So I had lived in Massachusetts and was around the, you know, around the Red Sox, for all of my life until, until that point. And I thought that all sports teams had the same rabid fan base and would sell out every game. The time that I was at the Red Sox, they sold out every game for years and years and years consecutively. And 
it was really different going to the Dodgers because although there was a very passionate fan base, it wasn't quite the same. There were just so many other things to do in Los Angeles with Hollywood being there and the entertainment industry being there. And, you know, there, there wasn't quite as much to do right around the ballpark. So you'd see fans roll in and the, you know, it's the sort of stereotype in LA roll in in the third inning and leave in the seventh or eighth inning. And so, and there'd be thousands of empty seats in the stadium. So for the first time, you had to really try to, you know, be creative and think differently to attract people, not only to come to the game, but to arrive on time, to leave when it finished. So it, it was far more different than I would have expected when I first made the change. I'm one of those guys who, whenever I see that Kirk Gibson famous World Series home run, my eyes are drawn to the taillights and someone leaving. <laughs> like, right. wait, you're missing the best. Ah, oh, unbelievable. Um, in terms of how the organizations function, are baseball teams pretty similar or or were there significant differences? I mean, one of the differences has to be way more emphasis probably on ticket sales and and trying to get that fan behavior different, but in terms of how they set up their shops, did you have a much bigger PR department, for example, or is every team unique because their situation's unique? No, the structure was relatively similar. I, I think that baseball teams in general are relatively lean you have people who really, really love what they do and they want to be there. You have a lot of uh, veterans of the game who have been there for a long time. And this is, you know, so linked, I think, with people's identities. So uh, and people who are fortunate to work in the in the space. I think the one real difference is. Uh, and the markets are huge too. So there are a lot of similarities there, a lot of, a lot of media interest. The one big change was just, yeah, trying to focus on ticket sales, thinking about matchups. How can we create intrigue among the fan bases? There were a lot more promotions of trying to get people in the door where when I was in the Red Sox, they just didn't have to, didn't have to come up with those things. It was more kind of fending people off sometimes and, and trying to create alternate opportunities to engage with the team outside of games and your role was pretty different with the Dodgers what did you do for that organization yeah so as I was mentioning with the Red Sox it was so very much dealing with the inbound requests and there was more than enough to keep me occupied with the Dodgers it was very much a proactive PR role so I went into a job that hadn't existed before, which was trying to build relationships and create mutually beneficial media opportunities with Hollywood and the entertainment industry. So I was reaching out to celebrities and their publicists and agents and trying to get them to come to Dodgers games, um, get them to throw first pitches, working to get photos of them in Dodgers gear, pitch that out to People Magazine and Us Weekly and really try to attract kind of the, you know, the, the entertainment and Hollywood aspect that the Lakers have done such a great job to create and try to bring some of that to, to the Dodgers. So it was that. And then also publicity for some of the business ventures, sponsorship agreements, things like that. It feels like a very different job. It for sure had to be a different group of contacts that you needed how did you develop those connections into these completely different industries? 
Yeah, in a weird way, it felt like a startup. I was the only I was the only person in the PR team doing that at the Dodgers, and I didn't know where to start. There was no template. No one had done it before, so I just started coming up with a list of celebrities. I started looking at who who were the guests on the Tonight Show and the other late night uh, shows who had a new movie out or a new show out where they might be looking for extra publicity, who were just fans of the team who maybe didn't have a contact at the Dodgers. So it was just thinking creatively, making hundreds and hundreds of cold calls and cold emails to talent agencies and others just to try to create that dialogue with the entertainment industry and see if they want to come to, come to a game. I think today it'd be about that viral moment, but this was the infancy of social media. How were you guys able to translate that into exposure? You mentioned a, a People Magazine hit, but how, how were you able to quantify what you were delivering? Yeah, a lot of it was, was publicity and media value. So that was the time when social media was just starting to uh, really become popular. And so there were a ton of entertainment blogs. So in addition to sort of the print publications, blogs were sort of exploding. So on my media distribution list would be all the traditional players, but all the, all the new media at the time as well. And then we would capture content on our own. So we would film when celebrities would come to the game, we would have them down on the field. We would interview them with Dodgers, you know, their own productions. We created a page on Dodgers.com devoted all to Hollywood and, you know, Dodger celebrity fans. So we were in the early days of social media and kind of digital marketing, but trying to do as much as we could within kind of the, the owned ecosystem that we had. Dealing with celebrities is in some ways similar, but in a lot of ways different than dealing with players. And oh, by the way, you're in Los Angeles, which is known for traffic. Uh, what are some of the, the highlights of people you have, but also just some of the things that came up that you never would have thought of before you even had that role? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you need to be willing, one, to deal with rejection because there's a lot of times that you will reach out and never hear back or there just won't be any interest. And this was my whole job. So people were relying on me to get big name talent in the door, create publicity for the Dodgers around it. We had a celebrity softball game where you're supposed to be getting A-list celebs, but the reality is A-list celebs don't want to be playing a celebrity softball game. And so you just need to be willing to, to put in the effort and make a lot of calls and, and be willing to, to hear no and you know, ultimately hope, hope to hope to prevail through that. Any fun encounters with celebs or anybody who, you know, did the pitch wild or something that uh, stands out in your memory all these years later? Yeah, there were uh, there were a lot of good ones. I mean, I remember some of the early ones. I mean, funny ones like, uh, you know, Jackie Chan would come in and and you just wouldn't expect uh, you know, or Snoop Dogg would come in and the crowd would go the crowd would go wild or you know, Matthew McConaughey and, you know, at the time, the, the big names were, were different than maybe today, but, you know, we had the Jonas Brothers there all the time and Zac Efron, Nick Jonas had his 16th birthday party at Dodger Stadium. We shut it down 
uh, overnight one night and he had all of his friends come in. So there were definitely some really cool things that, that would happen. And similar with the Red Sox, once in a lifetime kind of opportunity. So I was, was really grateful for, for that. And again, I'd never done any of that before, had no experience with the entertainment industry before. So it was just, you know, very much learning on the job. You mentioned at the outset being a huge baseball fan. You got out of baseball next, and Red Bull was the next stop for you. Was it hard to leave a sport that you're so passionate about? It was, but I was ready. As, as we said before, the schedule is just so grueling. And after seven years in baseball, that really took its toll on me. So I was ready. I was ready for something different. And one thing that's, you know, it's not talked about a ton, but, you know, in addition to the really, really long hours, the pay is not, is not great either. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was ready for something different at that time and, the Red Bull job came at exactly the right time for me because Red Bull, who had dominated in action sports for so many years, they were looking to build up a mainstream sports division. So getting into baseball and basketball and football, and they didn't have very many people there at the time who knew about those sports. So I was there in LA. That was where Red Bull's uh, U.S. headquarters were, and trying to, you know, build this as a new division. It just lined up perfectly with my background, and I think just working on the brand side just lined up a lot better from a lifestyle uh, lifestyle perspective. It seems like a similar story too, in that you get back into that startup mentality because you're going into uncharted waters. What was your the first? You kind of had two roles, I think, at Red Bull. What was the first half of your time there? Yeah, so it really was building up that mainstream uh, sports division and particularly within athlete marketing. So who are the best athletes within those mainstream sports that align with the Red Bull personality, that have uh, strong influence, that have strong performance on the field that we can go out and sign to, to start to make inroads with a mainstream sports audience. So... I mean, I was going out and signing and working with athletes like Reggie Bush and Rajon Rondo and Blake Griffin and Anthony Davis and Tim Lincecum. And just it, it, it was very cool because, as you said, it didn't exist before. And I could decide what, what the path would be. And Red Bull had a mentality of if you have a great idea, you can go and make it happen. And I think I, I love... I love those sort of entrepreneurial environments where, um, yeah, where you can be creative, even, even within these major global iconic brands to create something new that didn't exist before. These are athletes who their performance speaks for themselves. And Red Bull is a brand, an energy drink brand. You said you were looking for athletes who align with the Red Bull personality. How did you guys internally kind of identify that personality and paint that profile? Well, Red Bull was very clear about who they are as a brand. And I mean, the brand strategic documents, you, you think of Red Bull as sort of running and gunning and just do, doing crazy stuff, but uh, it's a very thoughtful and strategic brand and they know exactly who they are. And 
there are clear characteristics of this is what the Red Bull brand is. And you're going to look for that in, in athletes and, and, and once you do things differently. And so a lot of it, it can just be online research, but Red Bull never signed a single athlete before meeting them and usually spending extensive time with them. So, and that was the case, even with all these big time mainstream sports athletes, oftentimes we'd be spending hours and days with them before ever getting to talking terms or, or a business relationship. And that's how you know that there's an alignment. So, and, and that's how Red Bull wound up, you know, being in golf with an athlete like Ricky Fowler, you know, it's just, you know, the fit when it exists. And, you know, Ricky, for example, he loved motorsports and grew up with, you know, more of an action sports environment. So you want to try to blend those worlds as much as possible. Um, so it's an authentic fit. You've mentioned NBA, PGA, MLB, NFL. I know there was some tennis in there as well. You said you were on the internet, but I mean, this seems like a pretty deep dive to be <laughs> yeah. scrubbing the rosters of all these different organizations. And, you know, were there certain lifestyle publications that, well, a profile here would give me a good insight. It, it, there's a mountain of information you're coming through. How do you parse through it all? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy to figure out who the top 10 or 15 athletes are within a sport. And then you're starting to look for, okay, well, who are the athletes who are on the rise? Because Red Bull obviously had a young target demographic. So you want younger athletes in general who have, uh, you know, influence among a, a, a younger crowd. Who are the athletes who are adopting social media and putting content out there? Because Red Bull was so heavy with content. So there's a lot of different things that you could look at before ever reaching out to an athlete or an agent and athletes were also reaching out to Red Bull, which is, which is a great way to go about that because that means that they're actually interested and, and like what the brand was doing. So I was trying to stay connected to as many scenes as possible. I also tried to develop my network as much as possible because there's no way you can have your finger on the pulse across all those different sports. So it was really important to have close relationships within each of those sports. You could rely on the experts because I was not an expert across all of them. That's for sure. You mentioned having, for lack of a better word, a vetting process where you got to know the athlete. Was there ever a, a time where you spent time with someone and realized, you know what? No, this isn't the right fit. Absolutely. Yeah. And I won't, I won't give examples there. <laughs> no uh, need to name names. To, to name names, but Absolutely. And, and that's somewhat uncomfortable because oftentimes you would have a conversation with an agent multiple times before they ever connect the athlete with you. So you're sort of down the path a little bit and you feel like there could be a fit. And then maybe you go out to dinner with somebody and just the connection isn't there. Either the personality doesn't align with the brand you don't think it's an authentic interest for whatever reason. And you just have to be willing to, to say it isn't the right fit. And honestly, if it's not, it, the relationship won't go well if you wind up signing them. So it's a lot better to just not ever begin the relationship instead of having it go south a year into it. Because Red Bull and I think all great brands should and try to create long-term partnerships. So you want to create a relationship that could last three, five, 10 years. And if that's not possible, just don't, don't get started in the beginning. 
you get the athlete on board with Red Bull. What's then next in your work after that recruitment phase? Yeah, so it would be uh, really building out what we called sort of 360 marketing plans around them. So that would include things like athlete projects, which were owned events around the athlete that you would create that would be totally proprietary to Red Bull. An example of that would be, you know, we built up urban golf holes for Ricky Fowler in major markets around the country and would just set up these makeshift holes in the middle of, you know, skyscrapers and have him, you know, and invite thousands of people out there and see what he could do. So that's something that most brands wouldn't do, but Red Bull would try to do. So that would be one element. There'd be a social media component. There would be a PR team that would be, you know, pitching that athlete out for media opportunities. There'd be in-person appearances. So it would really be um, trying to build out all the different touch points where that athlete could create influence among your target consumer. Did you feel like it was pretty easy to get those players to participate in these things and, and knowing that you're kind of crafting things that were fitting their personality and had a little bit more edge, was it easier than say a, a corporate, you know, meet and greet type setting? If, if the fit was there. And I think that that goes back to what we were talking about before. I mean, we were putting Reggie Bush in, you know, airplanes and helicopters doing flips, you know, it, it, in the air and it takes a certain type of personality to want to do that. And in the vetting process, if you knew that an athlete would be excited about doing some of the crazy stuff that Red Bull did or wanting to get into a Formula One car or something, then those asks were so much easier down the line. And if somebody was a bit more traditional, then, then no, they'd be better off with a, a different sort of corporate sponsor mentioned you kind of transitioned halfway through your time with Red Bull into sports marketing role. What was the difference as you went from that athlete side of it to more broadly the sports marketing side? Yeah. So sports marketing at Red Bull encompassed in addition to athlete marketing, there would be event marketing. So Red Bull would own and operate a lot of their own events, whether that was Red Bull Fluke Tog or Soapbox or any of the other uh, owned events as well as... Sorry, Fluke Tog? Fluke Tog, yes. Help me out here. Which is where people would build homemade flying devices and launch them off a platform to see how far they could fly in front of literally hundreds of thousands of fans. Okay. <laughs> go, go, go look at some of the videos online, some of the YouTube I, videos, and it was, uh, and, and just created a massive party out of it as well. So, um, yeah, so it, it was putting on those types of events, both sport and and more lifestyle type events like that third party sponsored events. And again, so that might be a formula one race that was happening in Austin, Texas at the time. So it really encompassed athletes and events. And at the time for, uh, I was working out of the Dallas office at that time and responsible for a 13 state territory that kind of ran from, New Orleans, all the way up to kind of the mountains of Colorado and Utah. So all the athletes and events that took place in that region. 
which gets into some of those more extreme sports, probably with snowboarding and whatnot up in those mountains, all the way to F1, which each has its own niche audience and it's each demographic. And again, for you, how are you learning about each of these different properties and, and able to kind of cater what you guys are doing to that particular event and that audience? Yeah, and that, and that really that really did fall back on my network. I did have people on my team at that point who would be specialists within each of the different geographies, but also in the, in the different sports. So, and then also people who were really skilled at putting on you know, major events. So I could really rely on my network more at that point because there's no way that I would know uh, skiing athletes in Colorado as well as I would know NBA athletes in New Orleans or, you know, events across that spectrum. So I really tried to lean on my team and other experts in the space. And there's very much that identity for Red Bull and that brand awareness. I think they're as recognizable as any brand, especially for a brand that's active in sports without being about sports itself. Your next job was at Cliff Bar, which is coming at it from probably a different angle than Red Bull. Is that a fair assessment? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Similar sport landscape in the sense of a lot of adventure sports from skiing and snowboarding and surfing and, and uh, you know, climbing, sports like that, which would be an overlap with Red Bull, and also a very heavy focus on endurance sports, so running, triathlon, cycling. So there was some overlap with what I had done. And to be honest, I think Cliff Bar looked at what Red Bull was doing, and Red Bull was was – very much at the time anyway, a best in class marketing organization. And I think Cliff Bar wanted some of the, the Red Bull special sauce. And so that's sort of what led to, led to my transition. I can't picture Cliff Bar with athletes. Were there sponsorships with athletes and was that part of that marketing mix for them? Absolutely. A lot of athletes as well uh, across all those sports that I just mentioned and a very, very large sponsored event portfolio. So Cliff Bar really grew up in a very grassroots model. So uh, the owner and founder started the brand by handing out bars on bike paths and, you know, running paths. And it just grew up organically from there. So the athlete sponsorships, in general, and event sponsorships were smaller in scale than Red Bull, but similarly built on authenticity, athletes who love the product and who align with sort of the, the lifestyle. And for Cliff Bar, they aired more on the sort of adventure and inclusive adventure side, whereas Red Bull is probably a bit more sort of extreme. Yeah, it definitely strikes me that there is that extremeness for Red Bull and Cliff Bar has a little bit more of an everyday appeal for people. Does that influence then everything you're doing in terms of that sports marketing role? Yeah, I think you have to balance at the time risk a bit more because Red Bull's whole brand platform was giving wings to people and ideas. And where that translated on the athlete side was how do we make athlete dreams come true? And whatever an athlete wants, 
let's try to go out and make it happen. So that was where, you know, they built Sean White, the, the half pipe in the middle of an untouched mountain in Colorado, right? Let's just do crazy stuff. Where at Cliff Bar, the, the focus was on athletes, but it was also, how do we make this an inclusive brand? How do we get as many people as possible to kind of plug into this? We make products for kids. We really have to be mindful about what's in the product and the sort of brand message that we're putting out in the world. So there would be, I think, more of a conservative approach, especially around athletes who are participating in riskier sports like free solo climbing, for example, and very thoughtful about where do we want our logo to be and what's the worst case scenario that could happen and, and do we want to be aligned with that where those conversations weren't coming up as, as much at Red Bull, to be honest. It strikes me as probably a little bit of a different hospitality opportunity at some of those events that Cliff Bar was involved with as well. Is that an accurate perception and, and how do you kind of change that? I mean, Formula One is probably the pinnacle of that hospitality VIP experience. That's harder to do when you're out at you know a free solo event or something. Yeah, I think that the Cliff Bar approach was just more balanced. It was, uh, people like to have a good time and have a lot of fun. It was very inclusive, very family friendly, again, in a privately held uh, independent company. But they also make a lot of, very focused on health. It was a health conscious company, caring about the, the quality of the ingredients, making a lot of kids products, wanting to make sure that it was good natured Whereas the hospitality around Red Bull events was definitely much more of a, a party atmosphere. Young 18 to 22 year olds really having a good time and, and, and just trying to seize life, you know? And so there were, there were some overlap, but some, some distinct differences as well. From an energy drink to a nutrition bar, now with a shoe and clothing manufacturer with New Balance, and a much broader scope. How would you describe your role as brand and consumer marketing? Yeah, so I am very much still trying to drive brand perception and brand image for New Balance in North America, and also really focused on helping to, helping to drive the business. And you're right, my role is more general now than it was in the past. So I oversee all of our paid media, so all of our, all of our advertising programs, as well as our integrated marketing around key categories like basketball, lifestyle, and running. So uh, just the marketing mix is a bit, a bit broader, but in terms of the, the objectives, it's pretty similar to, to some of the other places I've been in the past. What is the role of sports marketing in that broader picture that you have to overlook now? Yeah, so sports marketing is not on my team. So I'm not directly working on sports marketing, although sports marketing for New Balance plays a huge role. And when you think about building the brand, still athletes are the original influencers. And it's the same thing. When you align with athletes or properties, that are highly visible and align with your brand personality, it's really, really impactful 
to, to build awareness and kind of bring in new consumers. And it just makes all of the more hard hitting tactics to drive the business that much easier when you have some high profile athletes who are, who are doing some amazing things out on the field and on the court. And I want to stay on that sports marketing side of it. And, and it's interesting for New Balance because not that long ago, New Balance boasted that we're endorsed by no one. And now today you're working with Kawhi Leonard, Jose Altuve, Rose Lavelle, Coco Goff. Um, it, that's a pivot, to say the least, to go from endorsed by no one to all in with these athletes. That happened, I think, about 10 years ago. Has the company seen that pay dividends? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, New Balance is trying to do things differently in a very competitive category. Of course, we, we are up against some giant competition and New Balance is a privately held independent company, which enables us to do things differently, both in terms of the athletes that, that we select and the way that we go to market. So it is not a massive approach. It's not a bigger approach. It's how can we, how can we be the best at what we're doing? How can we partner with the right athletes? How can we give them incredible service? How can we build marketing programs that are unique and different um, to build the New Balance brand? So athletes and sports marketing relationships are, are critical, but it's definitely a selective, thoughtful approach as opposed to just let's sign everybody and, and see what works. It's a unique challenge when you're adding people who are playing team sports. Uh, so Rose Lavelle, for example, is a New Balance ambassador, yet New Balance isn't providing that kit for Team USA or for Manchester City. So how do you guys work that out when your athlete isn't necessarily able to wear your gear all the time? Yeah, I think it requires a couple of things. It requires some creativity to do things off the field or off the court to activate those athletes. It requires the athlete to always keep the brand as much as possible top of mind because the athletes have media opportunities all the time. They have their social media that they're present in all the time. So that's where some of the responsibility falls on the athlete to, to represent the brand. And then where it makes sense, we also create relationships with the league or with teams to be able to use uh, athletes in uniform and use them in a, in a bigger way, much like we've done with the NBA to be able to activate athletes like Kawhi uh, in the space. So it just depends. We look at all the opportunities, but you definitely have to be more creative with athletes that um, you don't have the, the team or league relationship with. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, wanting to have that relationship. And it feels like with some of these, you Guys got in early. I mean, Coco Goff, a great example, getting in early and, and hopefully, I presume the hope is that this is now a, a long-term, long-standing relationship. Is that in the mind as you guys are picking out athletes to work with? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sort of, as I said before, the goal with any athlete that you sign is to create a long-term partnership. And especially when you're aligning with somebody at 15 years old or 16 years old, yeah, I mean, you, you would love to be with that athlete for, you know, decades and through their whole career. That is, I think that that is the real power of sports marketing 
is that you build up that association, that partnership, both with the athlete, but also in the consumer's mind over time. The stuff that I don't think works nearly as well are one-off influencer engagements that you're doing or six-month deals or even one-year one deals. I just don't think you ever have the impact with the consumer that you can create with a long-term partnership. So that's always the goal at the outset. doesn't always work, but that's what, that's what you go for. And it's different too, because you're now marketing a product that consumers can use to go play these sports. I can go pick up a pair of New Balance shoes and play in them, you know, not nearly as well. I don't think they're going to change my three point shot, but you know, as you approach marketing from that perspective that your consumer could use this product to go play these games, does it change that image you're trying to get out there in perception? It does because there is both a performance component and a lifestyle component. So a lot of the athletes that we sign, of course, and this goes back to previous companies as well, the, the performance on the court or on the field has to be there because they're endorsing your product as a performance product. But also they need to line up with you from a personality perspective and a lifestyle perspective because as you know, the lines are blurring between performance and lifestyle and culture, especially between things like basketball and culture. So you really want somebody who can perform and give you the, the credibility from a performance perspective, but also can influence uh, from more of a lifestyle component as well. In this role with this company now, do you get more involved in that end product and that sale and trying to work with stores and, and other outlets that are going to be, you know, the retail outlets that are going to be putting the New Balance products out there and trying to come up with things that are going to work well at that point of sale, which probably wasn't really part of your mix in Cliff Bar or Red Bull, I wouldn't imagine. Yeah, it's definitely a mix between the brand building side of things and then what are the tactics that we can do closer to the point of sale to complete that purchase. So that is definitely required me building a new marketing muscle in terms of, okay, you're driving the big brand awareness, whether that's through athletes or sports or advertising campaigns. Well, what happens after they see that? Sequentially, what are the next messages that they can get to get them closer to going into a store or online? And then once they land in store or online, what is that experience like to try to close the loop? So that has been, uh, yeah, a great education process and something I continue to learn with because it's critical to, to complete that loop. PR and marketing career. What did you study in college? I was a pre-law and psychology double major. That's not the usual path. No. <laughs> Do you find though it's beneficial that you have come at it? You're not, there's so many sport management programs out there and no offense to them, but do you feel like you have a little bit of an advantage because you've come from a non-traditional path? Yeah, I do. I mean, psychology definitely plays a role in some of this law, I suppose, with some contracts and stuff, but less so. I thought I was going to be a lawyer and then happened to get the Red Sox internship, which, which set me on this path. I think, Pete, to be honest, when I first started in my career, I was 
there was a learning curve because I didn't study this in college or at a graduate program. But honestly, I think after a few months that was erased and then you're learning on the job and just trying to get better. And so maybe I was at a bit of a disadvantage initially, but I think as long as you love this and you have a passion for it and you work within your skill set, anyone could sort of be successful regardless of their focus during school. There are times when you're doing this work, and I think it's baseball in particular is a great example of that, where it is almost overwhelming because there's just so much and it is day in, day out and constantly going. How did you have that presence to kind of step back and take a little bit longer view and learn as you were going to see things in the bigger picture to help you with that personal growth? Well, when I was working with the Red Sox, there was not a lot of free time. So it was more mentors and people I looked up to within the organization, people who had, be, who had been in the sport for a long time um, and a little bit trying to grow my network externally. But I was fortunate. I mean, the Red Sox at that time, there were a lot of veterans who had been multiple organizations who were really leaders in the, in the field. So I just tried to learn as much as possible from people within the organization because I was not getting out a lot during those days. To someone who is in school now studying whatever they may be studying, what type of advice would you share about getting into whether it's PR or sports marketing? Well, definitely building the network is critical, reaching out to people. And I'm sure everybody says that, but it is important because there's zillions of resumes that are going into any organization, whether it's a sports team or a brand. So if you make a personal connection, you're going to be far more successful. <clears throat> but I also think being clear about what value you add and where your skills and interests lie. To explain that further, I think a lot of people say, I want to get into sports and I'll do anything to get into sports. I think a better path would be, I really love communications. I am a great communicator and I love to write and I love to deal, you know, I would love to deal with the media. I think I would be great there. So I want to work in sports, but I want to do it within PR or I love data and analysis. And I think that I could be a data scientist within one of these organizations. So I think thinking about what you love and what you are good at beyond just wanting to work in sports is a really critical step to take at the beginning. You can obviously iterate and change as you go, but, but I would think about how you could blend a skill with sports, not just say, I want to get into sports. I think it's really good advice to kind of find that skill set that's going to work best for you. I think it's interesting now as you've looked back, working within the team and organization side versus working on the brand side, what would probably be the biggest differences that people should consider as they do look to where they want to apply those skills? Yeah, one of, one of the things is just the sports industry is a lot bigger than I realized. When I first got into this, I knew that there were teams and I thought that that was the only avenue in. So, and I was fortunate to get a, get a job with a team and a high profile team. I was really lucky, 
but there's a lot of other other ways in. There are agencies, there are brands. I mean, there's so many different brands who are involved with sports in one way or another, both sports brands like I've worked with, but also look at all the corporate sponsors that advertise for any pro team. Uh, they're, they're far beyond just sports. So I think you need to think about what is the type of work and talk to, talk to some of the people that work at teams, that work at brands, that work at agencies, that work at leagues and see what's the type of work that you think that you would really enjoy. I love brands because it allows you to be really, really creative, think outside the box and come up with things that haven't been done before. Um, so, so I found my sort of sweet spot within the brand side of things and I'm glad I transitioned to this. For other people, it might be different. So I think just try it out, talk to people and see what you like best. I close every episode with the set pieces, a half dozen questions for each of my guests. I open with what are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? Yeah, it's a good, good question. And I knew that this was coming from listening to, to some of the other episodes. So I listen to a range of podcasts, some of the ones that I listen to, and they're not necessarily sports related, but I listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast. And sometimes he'll have athletes on and good guests, like he had LeBron James on a couple of years ago, which was a fascinating one. I listen to the Rich Roll podcast, which is a great one. He, you know, totally turned his life around and became an incredible endurance athlete, really inspirational stories on there. I listen to the Kevin Rose podcast, which is a, a really good one. Um, yeah, those are, those are a few of the good ones that I like. On social media, who are your most valuable follows? The posts you do not want to miss. So I am probably most active on Twitter. I think Twitter is a great place to, to get news and stay up to date. Uh, some unconventional follows that are entertaining. So uh, this guy, Naval Ravikant, is a great follow on, on Twitter. He tweets about sort of investment stuff, but also happiness. I think he's the co-founder of AngelList. He's great. Uh, Elon Musk is very entertaining from a, from a follow perspective. I think the, the Pompliano brothers, Anthony Pompliano tweets about investments in cryptocurrency and his brother, Joe Pompliano tweets about the business of sports. They're both good follows and good newsletters as well. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of the good ones. What are a couple books you'd recommend? Okay. Books. The, the book by David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me, I think is what it's called, is amazing. That was kind of life-changing for me in terms of unlocking some of your mental capacity that you don't always tap into and, and overcoming obstacles. That was great. One of the best uh, sports books that I've read was Open. The autobiography from Andre Agassi was was awesome. A uh, couple of good marketing books, How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp is really good about marketing fundamentals. And then a book by Jonah Berger called Contagious is great about uh, sort of word of mouth marketing, viral marketing, um, which I read, I think when I was at Red Bull and, and really resonated with me. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? 
It's a good question. I think for me, this is don't check email first thing in the morning or last thing before bed. So I think I, I learned that from Tim Ferriss. And if you check email first thing in the morning, all of your priorities will get derailed for the day as you kind of respond to urgent needs from others. And last thing before bed, don't check email because you won't be able to sleep. You'll get insomnia thinking about all the things that you don't have time to do right there and, and it'll weigh on you. So I put that into practice a number of years ago and it has changed my life for sure. So what's your kind of window then for being on email? I try to, I try to have it be an hour, give it an hour after I wake up and also an hour before I go to bed. That enables me to maybe do one important thing before I check email. Also try to get a workout in if I can, which just makes me in a better headspace to respond to emails when I look at it. And then I've started to sleep with my phone in a different room and that makes a big difference so that I don't reach for it first thing or scroll through social as I'm kind of winding down. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? So my earliest sports memory that I can recall is watching the ball go through Bill Buckner's legs in 1986 uh, as the Red Sox lost the World Series to the Mets. And then that sort of combines with, in 2004, I was fortunate enough to be in St. Louis when the Red Sox won their first World Series in 86 years. So I think having that be my first sports memory and then have it kind of come full circle as a, as a kid growing up a huge Red Sox fan, that was sort of, you can't beat it. Did you get a ring? Two of them, actually. Yeah. Very. Okay. The, the, uh, the Red Sox ownership was incredibly generous to the front office. And yeah, really lucky to have two of them. Where are they? So one I had given to my dad um, and I have, uh, and actually I met my wife working for the Red Sox. She has one as well. So I won't say exactly where, but they're, they're in my house now. They're in the house. That's fine. We're not breaking in. Just you know, <laughs> it's displayed or is it put away? From no, paper? no, no. They are not displayed. They are hidden. Should, uh, <laughs> should the house get broken into? They're in a vault. They're, they're in a, yeah, in a vault, but they're in the house. Okay. Uh, speaking of memorabilia, do you keep your credentials? And if so, is that also locked away in a safe or is that more proudly displayed? <laughs> yeah, some of them I do. I mean, definitely uh, World Series credentials, things like that. I have kept over the years and they are in my basement. I have a, a memorabilia room where, you know, some of, the, some of the items that are really important to me over the years, whether it's signed items or photos with different people and, and the, the big credentials that mean a lot to me are there too. I really appreciate you taking the time to share so much of your career. It is definitely a, a bit of a different path to go from PR and then transition into marketing, but it was great to hear how it all did tie together for you and wish you the best of luck, Andrew. Awesome. Thanks, Pete. That was a lot of fun to have the chat. Many thanks to Andrew for that conversation. It's great to hear how all of his varied experiences have tied together. Don't forget to visit credentialsonly.com for show notes and to sign up for our mailing list so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Also, please make sure to follow us on social media at credentials only on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Do us a favor, please. 
leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. My thanks to Mike Mouchet for editing Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.